two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you once again, Rebecca, and welcome to yet another edition of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. Since about the 1950s, but especially within the last 30 years or so, there's been a staple of the crime movie genre where the cop and the criminal they're chasing are considered to be two sides of the same coin. We talked about that in our previous episode with Heat, and that idea was spoofed pretty well in the movie adaptation directed by Spike Jones, which we will hopefully be covering in a future episode, where Nicolas Cage plays twin screenwriters, one of whom writes a serial killer movie where the cop and the serial killer they're chasing are merely two different personalities of this one person's multiple personalities. But at any rate, we've seen a lot of movies and TV shows where cops and criminals are portrayed as two sides of the same coin. The two movies we'll be talking about today, which are The Killer, written and directed by John Woo, and So Close, directed by Corey Ewan, take this eye idea one step further in that the cop and the criminal they start out chasing end up teaming up with each other to fight against a common enemy and for a common cause. And we'll be discussing all that. In addition, both of these movies are from Hong Kong. Both are action dramas advertising heavily the action part, though I think the drama part works pretty well too and then finally and this was for me was the interesting part is that in both movies the cop is not crooked they are good honest and dedicated so that lends a little ambiguity to the idea that they're teaming up with the crook both cases it's a killer and then also so close is the distaff or gender-flipped version of The Killer. And we'll get into all of that. But for now, Claude's going to give us the plot description for The Killer. Yeah, we open up at a small Christian church in a huge rainstorm. And there is one man appears to be in the church, and he's surrounded by hundreds of lit candles. It is Ah Zhang, who is played by Chow Yun-Fat. Now, in my captions, he's called Jeff for some reason, and I hear he's called John in other captioned versions, but I'm going to go with Ah Zhang. Um, Anyway, another man enters the church. It's Feng Se, his manager, who is played by Chu Kong, and again, in my copy, he is referred to as Sidney, which I'm told is not uncommon. Uh, Feng Se has a job for him. Uh, Ah Zhang goes to a nightclub to get the job done, but while he's in there, he's a little bit captivated um, by the singer in the nightclub, Jenny. She is played by Sally Yeh. Uh, during the shootout, Jenny is nearly killed, but in the effort to get away from the target's bodyguards, Ah Zhang fires his gun close to Jenny's face, and the muzzle flash damages her eyes. Ah Zhang himself is hit by a couple of bullets, but escapes, returning to the church to have the bullets removed, and I'd like to come back to that scene briefly during our discussion. Afterward, Ah Zhang begins to see the nearly blind Jenny at the nightclub uh, every night to hear her sing, but he never interacts with her. But one night, as she's leaving the club, she is attacked by muggers. Ah Zhang intercepts them, and he takes her home, and the two begin to fall in love. 
Jenny's vision can be corrected with corneal transplants, but the corneas are scarce in Hong Kong. So Ajong makes plans to accept one final job. During the hit, he's spotted by police detective Li Ying, and a chase ensues, but he loses him briefly because it turns out that Feng Se's boss, Wang Hoi, who is portrayed by Xing Fui An, is pulling a double cross and has sent some goons down to kill Ajong. In the ensuing gun battle, during which all of the hitmen are eventually killed, a small child is injured. Ajong scoops up the girl and rushes her to the Sacred Heart Hospital. This is, by the way, one of my favorite bloopers in all movie-dumb. It's, 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 uh, the sign says, Scared Heart Hospital. Uh, anyway, by this point, uh, Li Ying has regained the trail and follows him to the hospital. They catch up with him in the emergency room, and there is a standoff until the girl begins to regain consciousness, at which time Ajong is able to make his escape. Now, Li Ying, having realized that Ajong has a little bit of a conscience, puts two and two together and he gets Jenny. He and his partner, Sergeant Sang, who is played by Kenneth Sang, go to her apartment to lay down an ambush. Ajong catches wise, and the ambush isn't especially successful, but there's a bit of a comic moment where Li Ying and Ajong are talking in a kind of code around Jenny, who can't see that they're pointing weapons at one another. Again, Ajong escapes, and Li Ying tells Jenny that Ajong is not only a killer, he's the guy responsible for her being blind. Ajong meets with uh, Feng Se to demand his payment that evening. Now, at this point, Feng Se is in on the double cross, so he goes to Ajong's apartment with a suitcase. Ajong is already suspicious, of course, and he isn't surprised when the briefcase contains only blank paper. It's another ambush, and he shoots his way out, making a point of sparing Feng Se in the process. The next day, Ajong does a hit and run on Wang Hoi's car, wounding him and killing his driver and bodyguard. Jenny is coerced into uh, luring Ajong to the airport where they can capture him. While Ajong says he trusts Jenny, he does send a decoy to pose as him while he enters separately in a disguise. The police chase down the decoy, Ajong grabs Jenny, and he escapes with her. They're still making plans to leave the country so that she can get her eye operation. Li Ying gets taken off the case, and Sang is assigned to assist the new lead. Sang is assigned to tail Feng Se, and he is badly injured. In the hospital, he gives up the address to Li Ying and dies shortly thereafter. Li Ying heads to Ajong's place, and during the confrontation, they're ambushed by triad hitmen. Now, Ajong literally saw them coming, so he's more than ready, more ready for it rather than Li Ying is, but the two of them basically have to fend off the triad. They and Jenny all have to hide out while Ajong recovers from his injuries, and this is where they get an opportunity to bond with one another. The three of them return to the church to wait for Feng Se to bring Ajong's money. It's becoming clear that Jenny's vision is deteriorating to total blindness. Ajong tells Li Ying that if anything happens to him, either his cornea should be donated to Jenny or his money used to get her the surgery overseas. When he arrives, however... I'm sorry, when Feng Se arrives, uh, he has been horribly beaten by Wang Hoi's goons in a scene that we have seen as viewers intercut with the conversations in the church. The triad breaks into the church and shoots up Feng Se, so Ajong performs a mercy killing on him, after which there is a long and bloody shootout with the triad gangsters in the church. The shootout ends in a Mexican standoff between Li Ying, Wang Hoi, and Ajong. Wang Hoi shoots Ajong in both eyes after being badly wounded himself. Ajong and Jenny, now both blind, grope about trying to find one another, but crawl past each other, and then he dies. When the police arrive en masse, Wang Hoi asks to be taken into custody, but Li Ying just shoots him down. And as he falls to the ground surrounded by cops, he repeats his nickname for Ajong over and over. Another thing that changes constantly through the credit, uh, through the through the captions. Sometimes it's Shrimp Head, sometimes it's Mickey Mouse. Uh, we dissolve to a flashback shot of Ajong playing the harmonica, and as the credits start to roll, it fades to black. <laughs> 
Okay, so we talked about Hong Kong movies back when we were talking about In the Mood for Love and Infernal Affairs. And I mentioned that when Hong Kong movies exploded in the 80s and 90s, the genre that made the most impact worldwide were the action movies. And the biggest action director of the time was John Woo. He actually started out making comedies and some kung fu movies, but he'd always wanted to make a gangster film or an action movie. And he finally got the go ahead in 1985 with the movie A Better Tomorrow. And that made his name in Hong Kong, but it was the killer that launched his name worldwide. And for good reason, I think. At first, I would think that, or first I thought that A Better Tomorrow was his best film, the first one. He directed a sequel that he wasn't as happy with. But upon rewatch, I think that The Killer is his best movie and one of the best action movies in general ever made. What do you think, Claude? Um, I actually tend to agree with that. Um believe it or not. I mean, the this film, both of these films really were highly stylized in their look, although in very different ways. And, and you know, we already discussed off mic a little bit uh, about the next film. But but this one, too, it just just had a very, um, a very specific look to it that you could you could really lock in on. There were like, you know, funky little things like like slow motion sequences and freeze frames and, and, and where you don't necessarily expect them. And uh, and yeah, there was like that that very choreographed, very kinetic kind of action going on in all the fight scenes. It wasn't just a matter of like, you know, I'm going to like duck behind a thing and start shooting. It was like just people getting acrobatic practically as they do some of the stuff that they do. Um, you can see a couple of the cracks showing through with some of the action sequences, just, you know, a, a little bit of new director kind of stuff. But but for the, mo- you know, just, um, and I'm thinking like at the shootout at the end where uh, a couple of guys break through a railing as they fall and you can see that the railing is a little bit breakaway. So if they just like started that a few frames later, it might've looked a little bit better, but for the most part, yeah, this film looks really, really good. Well, part of the reason why the action scenes work so well is Wu is a fan of a lot of different kind of movies. And I'm going to get back to his influences in just a moment, but primarily or not primarily, but one of his biggest influences is musicals and Every action scene is directed like a musical number. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not mechanical at all. Like so many action, American action movies at the time were, and many still today, in my opinion. You know, it's done almost like you're watching a ballet or a dance or something like that. Right. And now, in fact, that the music doesn't often seem to have a lot to do with the action that's on the screen. And that's one of the cool things. Like if you're watching Star Trek or if you're not watching Star Trek, you could do this with your eyes closed and you hear dun, 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 dun. you know, there's a fight going on. You don't always know that if you're just listening to the music to these films. Well, I'm going to get back to the music as well in okay. just a moment. But, um, you know, as I said, the you know, the action scenes are like musical numbers. Now, that's not the only thing he picked up in musicals. Uh, one of his favorite 
movies, John Woo's that is, was West Side Story. Mm. And the scene where um, scene where Ajang and Jenny first see each other in that nightclub while she's singing, um, Wu said he was inspired there by the scene where Tony and Maria first see each other in the dance hall okay. in uh, West Side Story. So that's, you know, very clear. Um, now, an, as much as the way that the movie looks, though, as far as the action scenes go, it's the emotion and the heart that, for me, make John Woo's movies so good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a critic who used to work for the Chicago Reader and also wrote the DVD column for the New York Times for a while, Dave Kerr, who said when he was talking about the killer that for Wu, the action scenes are how the characters express their emotions. And I would definitely agree with that because, you know, you really get inside the emotions of the characters when they're doing this. And then also in the non-action moments. Um, and there's a, there is a little bit of fun, you know, the cut that the DVD version that I have of the killer uh, when Ajang and Inspector Ying are addressing each other when they're in Jenny's apartment, they refer to each other as Mickey Mouse and Dumbo. That's the yeah, subtitled version I have. That's, the what problem, I got. that's what I got as yeah, well. Yeah, the problem that can be had with watching Hong Kong movies, assuming you're able to get a subtitle, titled version, of course, is the subtitles are not always great. But the essence is there, and there's a playfulness to that scene. But a lot of, or most of the movie, Wu is looking at not just the conscience of the Ajahn character, but the code that he operates under. We're recording this a few days after the death of Michael K. Williams, whose most famous character was Omar Little on The Wire. And, um, you know, he, one of his most famous sayings attributed to that character, even though someone else says it first, is a man must have a code. And all of Wu's characters in his action movies operate on that principle that, you know, the man must have a code of honor. Now, he picked that up from samurai movies, especially of ones by Akira Kurosawa, the films of Jean-Pierre Melville, who's become one of my favorite filmmakers after I heard of his name through Wu and others, and through a Japanese movie that is sort of obscure, but he got some elements from. The English language title of that is An Outlaw. It's from 1964, but the Japanese title is Narazumono. It's not a it's a good, not a great movie, although it stars one of Japan's most famous 
actors, Ken Takakura, who's probably best known in this country for the 1975 movie, The Yakuza, directed by Sidney Pollack and co-starring Robert Mitchum. But in Narazumono, Takora plays a professional killer who tries to only target people who are gangsters or on the wrong side of the law. And when he ends up getting hoodwinked into killing an innocent, he goes to, when he ends up killing an innocent and is hoodwinked into doing that, he ends up going on a roaring rampage of revenge against the people who hired him and tricked him into killing an innocent. And a couple other elements that are in this movie that are shared with the killer are there's a prostitute who has tuberculosis, who's sickly, and he decides to take on a job to get enough money to pay for her to go somewhere to get well. There's a cop who ends up catching up to him, but when he realizes that Takakura's character is going after the really bad guys, he ends up helping him out. And just as in The Killer, unfortunately, Takakura's character ends up in the spoiler alert, but this is a 57-year-old movie, so, <laughs> but he ends up dying and not able to help out the uh, woman. So this was a huge influence on um, The Killer. Incidentally, um, a movie that I, and to be fair, a lot of other Western writers thought was an influence was a movie called Magnificent Obsession, Hmm. which was a novel that was filmed twice, most famously by Douglas Sirk in the 1950s, where Rock Hudson plays a uh, guy who, a playboy whose recklessness causes um, a woman to become blind and also a doctor to get killed. And feeling guilt-ridden, he trains himself to uh, become a doctor so he can perform an operation on her to restore her eyesight. Uh, The Douglas Sirk version, which came out in 1954, uh, Jane Wyman played the woman. But apparently Wu did not see Magnificent Obsession before he made The Killer. So that was a mistake on my part when I wrote (laughs) about it, and I have to admit that. It is Narazumono, along with several other movies, that was the primary influence. And another, the two main Melville movies that were the influence here were La Samurai with Elaine Delon as a hired killer. And that's influenced a lot of movies, not just The Killer, but also uh, Leon the Professional from 1994 with Jean Reno. And then also Jim Jarmusch's great movie Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai with Forrest Whitaker. And then another prime influence for uh, from Melville is one of my all-time favorite movies, Le Cirque Rouge, where um, Yves Montand plays a former cop who teams up for a robbery. And the scene where he has to shoot out a lock 
was a big influence for the scene in The Killer where Ajang has to shoot someone from a boat. But despite all the fact that we've got all these influences coming into play, and I've got one more I'm going to mention in a moment, you know, it doesn't feel like a movie of Spot the Influence. It feels of a piece. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. I mean, Spot the Influence is something you can do with the Tarantino films, but this you would have to look really hard to say, okay, this is probably coming from here and this is probably coming from here. And as you know, you could be easily misled because of the Magnificent Obsession thing, although that is a guy who does commit to the bit. Can we talk about the scenes in the church? Because these were kind of... Yes, I was going to get to that, but go ahead. These were kind of cool because you've got that first scene where he's in there and it's really probably your first hint that you're in Hong Kong because it is a Christian church somewhere in the middle of a Chinese movie. Um, But But... You have just the two characters alone and hundreds of candles everywhere, which was kind of interesting because clearly nobody else is there. Maybe the priest is nearby, hopefully. And that's pretty much it for that scene. Now, the second time we're in the church is after Ajong is is injured and they take him to the church. And at first I thought it was like a shade tree doctor who was taking out the bullets. Uh, he had, I think, two shots in him. Um, but it turns out to be Feng Se. And... Um, but but here's the thing is is it's just this lovely little church. It's a very small, practically what you would call like a wee kirk, and um, despite all the all the all the candlelight, and you get this overhead shot as people are walking in, and it, and it, you you get a feel for the entire church itself. And then the next time we come into it, we get that overhead shot again, and a dove flies into the shot and goes clear across the church and lands on the cross at the at the end of the church. And that's how we know it's not a Catholic church because it's just a cross. It's not Jesus hanging on a cross. Um, and while he is taking, having the bullets taken out, he looks up, he sees the dove and he has, you can see he has this little epiphany that like he, that he needs to change somehow because this place has somehow saved him in, in more ways than one. And then when we get to the end of the film, when they are waiting for the money to arrive, there are, dozens of birds in in this church and so again there is a sense of peace that is coming over everybody in the film even though peace for the most part is going to mean you know death for ajong and you know and 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 um lee is probably going to wind up in jail and jenny well she'll at least maybe get her her eyesight restored uh, but but that's also you know the other thing i didn't notice in the previous two scenes was that during that gun during that gunfight there was a lot of construction going on in the church, which I don't think I noticed before. And I didn't go back to look again and say, oh, look, there was scaffolding there all the time. There was, you know, oil drums and stuff outside the church. There was all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, substances that can explode and burn and whatever else. I don't know if it just happened to be trucked in in between the last, the second and the third visit or if I just wasn't paying quite enough attention. But I did like the fact that like the birds seemed to multiply and, and it just seemed to to follow the, the journey of the characters themselves. OK, well, I'm going to get back to the birds and the church in just a moment. But first, I do want to mention that there actually was a somewhat happier ending planned in which um, Inspector Ying would get to take Jenny to someplace else 
and you'd see her getting her sight back. But Ye wasn't available, and Wu had run out of money by that time, so he had to scrap it. But we'll talk about the church. Uh, Wu was raised Lutheran, and he's very religious. In fact, in real life, he hates violence, even though he makes these violent movies. And both he and Xiaoyan Fat, who I'm going to talk about in a little bit as well, hate guns. Hmm. But anyway, but he is very religious. Now, he also had all the scenes in the church as an homage to Martin Scorsese because he was a huge fan of he's a huge fan of his and Martin Scorsese as we've talked about before and we're going to talk about again in a future episode is very religious even though he's not a practicing Catholic anymore and he has a lot of religious imagery in a lot of his movies so that was done as a shout out to him but this also was a way, again, of showing Ajang's conscience here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the doves go, this is the first movie that Wu used doves. And if you've ever seen any of his later movies, especially Face Off, you'll know that the question becomes, not should I include doves in this scene, but how many <laughs> how, doves do we, how do we work them in? <laughs> we, should, we should include the scene. You know, he loves putting doves in there. It's a tr- become a trademark of his. And, you know, they are a rather obvious symbol, but sometimes you can play big for emotion and it still works as long as it's uh, not heavy-handed about it. And there's nothing heavy-handed, in my opinion, to Wu's approach here. No, especially in as much as we also, we tend to see the doves flying away as as the violence begins. So it's, you know, again, kind of, sort of, like, you know, hitting you over the head with it, and at the same time, you know, not not so awful. I did also like, there was one scene, well, one shot, I should say, during the, the gunfight at the end where a dove flies down and actually extinguishes a few candles before flying out of the shot again. And I don't know if that's something they just happen to catch accidentally and decide, oh, this looks good and we're going to throw it in. But I did remember it and I appreciated the way it looked. Okay. Now, there is one weakness to the movie, in my opinion, hmm. and that's the relationship between Ajang and Jenny. Admittedly, Wu is not the best director when it comes to women. Uh, He did get a little better with that in America. And then his first couple movies, when he came back from America, back to Hong Kong, Red Cliff 1 and 2, although, again, the main characters are male, there are some good female parts in it, played by, especially one played by an actress who we're going to be talking about when we get to So Close. But Jenny is not a very well-developed character. And although I've liked Sally Yeh in another movie I saw her in, Peking Opera Blues, which was directed by the guy who produced the killer, Troy Hark, she isn't really given much to work with here. She is a singer in real life and she sings well. And I'm going to get back to the music in a moment. But 
although, you know, it's clear that Ajang has feelings for her and Inspector Ying Li develops them as well, it's not really much to the part. And so there's not really much to the romance. You do are rooting for Ajang to get enough money to pay for her sight to be restored, but that's about it. Yeah, I actually, I, again, I agree with that. In, in the, but here, here's my thing is I think that uh, scenes showing um, just just the, the initial development of that um, relationship would have would have done us just a little bit better. We didn't need a lot, but we did need a little bit more to, to make us buy into this because otherwise Ajong is doing almost everything out of guilt. You know, it's just his conscience making him do it. And, and so, you know, that, that took away from it. I'll tell you the one thing that actually bugged me about this film is uh, some of the sound work that that was going on. And, and the first thing I would say is, yes, you know, um, uh, Sally Ye is, is a lovely singer, but she can't lip sync to save her life. And you could see there were times when Wu was kind of covering up for that by some of his shot choices where they did like a close up of the top half of her face while she's singing at one point. They have her out of focus in several other shots. They just have her playing off camera in, in other places. So that that wasn't happening very often that, that that you could see her matching well with with what she was supposed to be singing. So that would be one. The other thing is some of the sound effects were a little bit weird. Um, and I'm not just talking about where and I'll, I'll give you that, like some of the gunfire sounded kind of like spaghetti Western gunfire in that it didn't quite match the ambience of the space they were in. And I can I can let that one slide. But there were other times like during physical fist fight scenes where somebody would get punched in the stomach and you would hear a type of strike, you know, or, or you know, that kind of thing. And, and so it was a little bit weird that that took me out of it just a little bit you know and the other thing i know you're going to and maybe we'll just use this as the segue is is as far as the the music the song that jenny is singing i didn't get any captioning on it so i have no idea what the lyrics were to that song and we hear it repeatedly throughout the the throughout the film whether it's the, the cassette tape that's being played in the apartment from time to time, whether it's her actually singing it. And once in a while, we hear it as an instrumental motif underneath the action. But basically, I, I have to think that the, the lyrics are somehow important. And I was a little disappointed that I didn't get any as I as I heard the song. Well, let's talk about the music then, because... Originally, John Woo, being a jazz fan, he wanted a jazz song in there. And he wanted um, Ajang to be playing the saxophone while Jenny was singing oh, in no, the no, original no, scene. No, no, no. <laughs> but um, Choi, that may have been for the best, but Choi Hark, who at that point was friends and producing partners with Wu, did not want jazz in there at all. He felt no one likes jazz. Why would you have <laughs> jazz in there? So he pushed Wu to include a more traditional Chinese song, which as I recall co correctly, because the DVD I have does have uh, subtitles on the song. It's just your generic Chinese song about love and fate. 
and things like that. Okay, and but it's got it's got kind of a Western style to it, so it's not that atonal Chinese. And we should point that out. It's not that atonal Chinese kind of thing. It's 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 a lovely piece. It's actually played on a piano, and and is sung in a kind of Western style, even though it's in Chinese. No, but I okay. I should I should. Um, clarify that it's like a asian pop song is what it is okay yeah about love and fate and things like that and you know while i know you poo-pooed the idea of uh ajang playing the saxophone there while i agree with that i would have preferred a jazz song there uh john Wu did eventually get jazz uh and Xiao Yun Fat playing the saxophone in their last movie together, Hard Boiled, which by then Choi Hark was no longer working with Wu, although the two of them have remained friends. They no longer are professional partners. But getting back to the sound effects and the other things, I know or I knew going in that this movie was made on the cheap. Oh, okay. So that stuff didn't really bother me. And, you know, I would rather have a movie like this where all of the action scenes thrill you and the emotion is there than just a generic American action movie where all the money is there, but there's no heart to it at all. Yeah, I get it. I, I, I do get it. It's, it's one of those things that just like briefly took me out of it. Oh, that didn't sound right. And maybe because I'm watching it with a little bit more of a critical eye instead of just kind of relaxing and enjoying the thing. So I can, I can own that much. Okay, now let's talk uh, about the actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was also a change of pace for Chow Yun-Fat as well as John Woo. At the time in Hong Kong, he was known as a light leading man, sort of on the style of Cary Grant. Um, I haven't seen a lot of what um, he did before The Killer. The only thing I remember seeing actually came out after The Killer, I think, uh, Gods of Gamblers, uh, where he plays a uh, card shark uh, who loses his memory, but um, that was the type of stuff that he was doing. And then the killer made him a action star. Oh, it actually came out around the same time, God of Gamblers, as the killer did, at least in Hong Kong. And he is very convincing as this uh, action guy. You know, he's... Uh, not in this movie, Better Tomorrow, he's more of, but he's wearing cool shades. And I think in this movie, he's got this uh, long trench coat as well. And also, and this was referenced in Jackie Brown, which we talked about a couple episodes earlier, he's holding two guns a lot. And he, more so on The Better Tomorrow, but here as well. And he makes all of that work. You know, he is, well, for me and for a lot of other people at the time, he was the epitome of cool here. Yeah, he was cool. I think Two Guns is kind of a woo thing, too. Uh, but, but Yes. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I think everybody was, was well cast in this film. I don't, f- you know, I'm, I'm trying to think if there were any real false notes as far as casting and... and 
No, I kind of I kind of bought everybody in the roles they were in. I liked who they were. I liked where they were. They all looked right. I, I you know, I think, yeah, that, that worked out pretty well. Yeah. Now, Danny Lee had played a lot of cops characters before, uh, which I have not seen a lot of his movies. But, yeah, he's very good. I know that uh, Kenneth Sang um, had been in A Better Tomorrow. And I think Kang Shu had as uh, well. And Fuyong Xing, I think, has appeared in other Wu movies as well, though I'd be hard-pressed to name them. Now, before we wrap this up, one other Wu trademark I want to mention here real quick, because we're going to mention it in the uh, next movie as well, is the two characters holding guns at the side of each other's face. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a woo trademark that has been in a lot of things. Even in Broken Arrow, when Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis um, face off against each other for the first time, while she's holding a knife, he's holding a gun. So it's practically the same thing. Right. And again, I think once again, like that whole Mexican standoff thing, that's something that Wu does a lot. And, and you know, he's so he's starting it. I don't know if he's starting it here, but he's at least moving into doing it on a regular basis at this point. OK, so anything else you want to mention here before we wrap this up? Uh, I Yeah, two things, actually. Uh, first is that this is a tough film to find. OK. And, and I had to contact Sean a little bit panicky because, as we discussed during the last episode, you know, it was the only place that we could find it with subtitles was on YouTube. And I and I will share that on the uh, on, on the social media. Um, but the thing is that you have to basically you have to click on the closed captioning in order to get the subtitles. The film will be in Chinese. You click on the closed captioning. It's going to tell you to select Chinese as your closed captioning. So you do that anyway, but you will get English subtitles. And then the other thing, I just want to do a little callback to something you said a little bit earlier um, about Michael K. Williams. This is like one of the things that we do on this show is we take two different films and we try to tie them together somehow. Michael K. Williams is one of those things that ties me and Sean together because he lived and died in Brooklyn, but The Wire was set in Baltimore. And so, yes, when he when the news got out that he had died, it had a huge impact here in town. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, so we're going to take a break right now. And we, when we come back, we are going to talk about So Close. Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. Hi, welcome back to the third half of the show. How was your break? It was fine, thank you. How was yours? It was fun. Does it weird you out when I say third half? You just kind of yes, it does every time. Right. So anyway, if the killer was the uh, macho version of cop and criminal team up together to fight for a common cause and against a common enemy, then So Close is the female version. But again, there are quite a few similarities here, and we'll get to all that. But for now, Claude's going to give us the plot description 
Crystal Klaus. Yeah, this is girl power, spelled G-R-R-L. Um, so we're back in Hong Kong, where a major Chinese company is shown to have a ton of security. But suddenly it's discovered that someone is hacking into the corporation's computers. And then just as suddenly, the hack is intercepted and the company's data rescued. The only clue they have to the identity of their savior is that they're called the Computer Angel. The CEO of the company orders his people to find the Computer Angel because that person could prove to be a useful asset to the company. The Angel comes to the building and is screened up and down, but it turns out that the data was never in danger. In fact, the Computer Angel simply cracked past the firewall and took over the displays so that it would look like a cybernetic invasion. In fact, the Angel is an assassin and she used the ruse to get close to the CEO in order to kill him. After doing so, she manages to escape without being caught on any of the security cameras. Uh, the film, incidentally, gets its title from this scene because they are jamming part of the security system by playing the Corrine May version of the song Close to You through it. Uh, the assassin is Lynn, who is played by Shu Ki, and her escape was effected with the assistance of her sister Sue, who is played by Zhao Wai. Uh, they're able to work so effectively because they have the assistance of satellite technology developed by their late father. Now, in the aftermath of the assassination, uh, police inspector Kong Yat Hung, who is played by Karen Mok, is assigned to the case. Inspector Kong is a little bit of a lone wolf on the police force, mostly because she's new to the force, but she's not new to policing. But she's also totally badass. She gets some help from her partner, Ma Su Ma, who is played by Michael Y as a kind of comic relief. Uh, while Kong is working on identifying the assassin, we're learning that the hit was contracted by the CEO's brother, Chow Nung, who is played by uh, Derek Wan. He did this to become the CEO himself, and now he's working on finding Lin and Sue so that he can have them killed as a means of silencing them. So you have the police and the corporate thugs all out to identify and kill Lin and Sue. Now, Lin and Sue each have specific roles in the assassination jobs they pull. Lin does the dirty work, and Sue acts as mission control, hacking into the security systems and watching the satellites to direct the entries and exits. Sue is starting to chafe in this role, however. She thinks that she's ready to do some of the field work, but Lin is resistant to this. Now, Sue thinks it's because Lin is of the opinion that Sue isn't competent enough, but Lin's really keeping her away from it, both to protect her from danger and to keep her from feeling the intense guilt that she herself is experiencing because of all the blood on her hands. In the meantime, Lin has fallen in love with her friend's cousin, Yen, who is played by Song Seung Hoon. Uh, he's, she's even confessed to Yen what she does for a living, but it doesn't drive him away. And that's a scene I'd like to talk about later. Lin decides that she wants to give up the life so that she can marry him. Sue, unbeknownst to Lin, intends to keep being a contract killer. But Sue is in fact kind of impulsive, and she actually spends some time taunting Inspector Kong by shadowing her in a record store and sending her a birthday cake. Unfortunately for Sue, Kong knows where the cake came from, and she stakes out the bakery, then calls her on the phone to draw her out. Sue realizes that she's been made, and this leads to a pretty frantic car chase. Sue has to call Lin for navigational help, and at the same time, Chao Nung's goons are invading their house, so Lin is alternately fighting them off and calling in escape routes to Sue. The gangsters kill Lin, and they plant evidence on her, pointing to Kong as the murderer. After she gets away, Sue finds Lin's body, and she checks the house's security system to learn the identities of the killer. She saves the video to a flash drive. Kong is taken into custody, but Sue manages to break her out. Ma professes his loyalty to her, but he also notes he can't go on with her at this point. Kong and Sue run off, and they cut a deal. If Kong will assist in avenging Lin's death, Sue will give her the video that will clear her name. They have a few bonding moments where it's 
suggested that in a different life, they might have been friends. Sue teaches Kong how to use the satellite system to help her infiltrate the building, but in the interim, the company has beefed up the security, so their hacking efforts are thwarted. Sue thinks that Kong has betrayed her, but Kong goes to the building herself, and as a team, they manage to defeat Xiao Nong. This time, they clearly affirm that, if not for the nature of their work, one a soldier and the other a bandit, they would have been friends. Sue visits Lynn's grave, thanking her for what she's done and reassuring her that she can take care of herself now. She promises to tell Yen what happened to Lynn because she doesn't like the idea of just mysteriously standing someone up. We see a short scene of Yen sitting in a restaurant waiting to meet with Lynn because she had promised to meet him there. And our last shot is Sue leaving the cemetery, presumably to meet Yen. Okay, so um, Sue and... Uh Kong Yat Hung, uh, I would say there's a promise of a little bit more than friendship there, but we're going to get back to that in a yeah. moment. Mm -hmm. First, um, let's talk about the fact that with the rise of comic book movies and TV shows and fantasy movies and TV shows happening now in America and across the world, it can be easy to forget that back in the 90s and the early aughts, knots, whatever we're going to call them. I go with aughts. Okay. In the early aughts, at least as far as Hollywood was concerned, women were there to be the damsel in distress when it came to action movies or the wife telling the guy, please don't go or things like that. You know, action hero women in America were few and far between. Now, on TV, that was a different story. By the 90s, you had shows like Nikita, Xena, Warrior Princess, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and then the Neots, uh, alias Sydney Bristow, was an action heroine, but not so much in movies. However, around the rest of the world, and especially in Asia, which is going to be our focus here, since So Close is a Hong Kong movie, they had a long tradition of action heroines. Um, there's, for example, from Japan, Lady Snowblood, which was a big influence on Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill movies. But then, you know, in Hong Kong, you had people like Michelle Yeoh, and even Anita Mui, who was the Madonna of Hong Kong during her lifetime until she died. And um, even um, Maggie Chung, who we mentioned with In the Mood for Love, as I said, you know, I first saw her in action movies like The Heroic Trio and The Executioners, where she co-starred with Mui and Michelle Yeoh. And... As with Chow Yun-Fat and Jean Wu, when, they, when Michelle Yeoh came to America or came to Hollywood to be in an action movie, uh, she was pretty misused. She was in the James Bond movie, Tomorrow Never Dies, and she gets one fight scene and one scene where she has been handcuffed to Pierce Brosnan is Bond the whole time. But then at the end of a whole chase sequence, she managed to hoodwink, hoodwink him and get out of the cuffs and cuff him to a shower they were both in. But the rest of the movie, she's the damsel in distress. 
Yeah, I that's mean, come Michelle, on. yo, man. Oh my god, she is such an ass kicker. Even like she is pushing 60 at this point. She's a year older than I am. Okay, so mm-hmm. okay, so she's 59. All right. And I don't know if you have seen her in the scenes that she did in Star Trek Discovery. She's still kicking ass in a hard, hard way. It's unbelievable just how good she is and also just how she can kind of just take up the whole screen. She doesn't choose scenery unless she's supposed to, but but holy cats, is she good. Okay. No, um, that's good to know, but we're, Michelle Yeoh is not in this movie, so yeah, I know. we're going to get back to the fact that <laughs> not only are... You know, are there women who are kung fu heroines in Asia? But there is a whole subgenre of movies, not just in Hong Kong, but elsewhere, that are given the somewhat, not somewhat, but sexist title of, as Tommy Shaw once sang, Girls with Guns. Mm. Movies and you've got a lot of them from Hong Kong. Movies like uh, as lighthearted as say Temptress of a Thousand Faces, which is from the '60s, or uh, Iron Angels, or The Naked Killer, or things like that. And so close is a movie that was intended to sort of revive that genre because this is around the time this movie came out in 2002 when Hong Kong movies were sort of on a downturn in general and that included action movies and included action heroine movies but so close I think is a very good example of a action heroine movie even though it's may seem at first glance to be somewhat slighter than the killer. It does pack a lot of emotion into it. And so I think it's a really good movie. It is. I mean, there, there are, you know, it's, it's a little bit over the top, but that's half the fun. All right. This is, this is definitely what you'd call a popcorn movie, you know? Yes. And, 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 and as I said, this movie is so, so stylized. And one of the things I did when I first started to watch this film and you've got just that opening scene where where um where lynn kills the ceo and just her efforts to escape and it's again so acrobatic and so amazing and she's just all over the place and she's got the stilettos that can stick her into the ceiling of the building for a little while and while she's you know blasting away at people and and whatever and and um I actually stopped the film and I started looking around to see, is this based on a graphic novel somewhere? Because I had the, almost the same feeling I had when, when I was watching Watchmen, where you could very clearly see that there were some shots in that film that were intended to mimic some of the stuff that you saw in the graphic novel. And I didn't really see anything. So this is just entirely, entirely on the production team, the, the way they got it to look the way they did. It's just unbelievably cool looking film so yes uh, girls definitely mm -hmm, they they definitely kick ass this is this is the kind of movie that like charlie's angels wishes it was okay i was going to bring that up Uh actually because there when we talk about the people behind the camera we tend to talk about the director the writer 
the cinematographer, sometimes the production designer, sometimes the composer. But there's one name here that needs to be brought up. The fight director or action choreographer, Wu Ping Yuan, who, to the best of my knowledge, is not related to Corey Yuan, the director, but he choreographed all those action sequences. Now, he became famous in Hollywood um, thanks to his work on the Matrix movies, and he also did the first Charlie's Angels movie. I don't know about Full Throttle, but... And he also did uh, the work on the action scenes in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm -hmm. Again, Michelle Yeoh. And his use of wire work was very influential in Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon. All of which to say that... When So Close came out, which was after the first Matrix movie and after the first Charlie Angels movies, I can understand why some people might think, oh, this is just another old hat, stylized Hong Kong action movie. But I think that the action sequences in this stand up to the first Matrix movie. Mm-hmm. Not quite Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because I put that on a pedestal, <laughs> but certainly better than the Charlie's Angels movies. And that's because Corey Ewan, the director, gives those scenes a personality. And there's no personality whatsoever in sh- the first Charlie's Angels movie, or the second one either. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and and this is the the kind of the cool thing is once again this is a film that that leans on a lot of different things we've seen before, but puts them together in a way that you don't necessarily say, oh, they're drawing from this movie, they're drawing from this movie, because there's just a lot of, um, let me let, let me like I'll just refer to it as, as almost like tropes that that this film goes through. You know, you got like you know just the 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 well dressed badass and the and the the um, you know the bathtub tea scene. There's a little fan service in there with with that scene and and uh, the the fight that takes place in the bathroom. And then similarly, there's a the scene later on where um, Lynn is getting dressed and you just see her briefly in her underwear. Uh, so you get that little bit of a tease. But you've also got these this weird morality thing where the you've got the professional killers, but they're dealing with somebody much worse. And I mean that's really the theme in both of these guys. Um, you've got just. Just a lot of the caught in the rain scene. And I want to come back to that again a little bit. Um, Sticking to the ceiling, these funky chase scenes and 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 um, and the mission control kind of kind of thing. You know, somebody directing all the action on scene from somewhere else and just all these different things. And you can you can find them in a lot of other films, but they all come together just so, so well here. Right now. As I mentioned before, this movie shares a lot with the killer down to the fact that there's a great scene in an elevator where uh, Kang Yat-hung and Lin are holding guns at their at each other's partners. Kang Yat-hung is holding a gun on Sue and... Um, Lin is holding a gun on Masu Ma. And then when they get out of the elevator, before Lin and uh, before Lin and Kong get into this fight scene, 
they're holding guns against the side of each other's face. And then they get into a uh, kung fu fight scene. And I there's a nice little bit of humor where Ma, after Lin's uh, jacket gets torn, uh, Ma is uh, looking at, at her, you know, gawking at her. And yeah. Sue happens to see this and points the gun right at his face saying, uh-uh, yeah. nah, not my sister. More fan service. So there's a little humor there. But... You know, other things that are in common with the killer, aside from the fact that the uh, gun that the cop and the criminal team up is also that there is a worse gangster than the killer. And also, you know, in the killer, the relationship between Yun Fat and Danny Lee's characters there is a bit of a homoerotic nature to it. So close takes that idea up to 11 here in the relationship between Sue and Kanyat Hong. I mean, it's not just that they are, that Sue is stalking her in the uh, record store. She actually cues the version of the Carpenters they want to be close to you. It's Korean mates, uh, not the Carpenters. Well, it's, I know the Carpenters, it's, 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 it's not the Carpenters it's a, version. It's a very faithful cover, but it's not, yeah. Yeah, but that's where I know it from. Mm-hmm. But anyway, there's that song, you know, she keys up the song uh, there and the way that they look at each other when uh, Sue is buying the pie at the store and, uh, Kong sees her out there, and then at the end, they uh, kiss each other after they've vanquished the bad guys. And there is quite a bit of, as I said, a homoerotic uh, tone in there. Now, I think, personally speaking, that this works better than the relationship between Lin and Yen, which to me is... The as with the killer, the weakest part of the movie. Here, it's more because I don't know. They give off more of a brother sister vibe. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of that, and and the other thing is with the, with one exception, um, I I wouldn't have thought that it was a reciprocal kind of thing. Because even the kiss at the end was, it, it looked like a little bit of a surprise uh, on Kong's part. Um, but there is also the scene when the cake arrives at, at Kong's office and she catches the camera. And so she carries yes. the camera up. She, I'm sorry. She carries the cake over to the camera. And you, I'm like, she's going to smash the cake into the camera and obscure the image. And no, what she does is she sticks her finger into the cake and she just licks it very carefully for the benefit of Sue watching. But other than that, it's like, okay, Sue is just the stalker and it's not going anywhere. But then you get that scene and you're like, oh, okay, this is going to be a little bit different. (laughs) Yes. Now, you wanted to mention the scene in the rain. Yeah, this was a a great, great scene. So it's, it's, they're at the end of a date. And well, I I have to back up because there, there was a scene earlier in a flashback where um, what happened was uh, Lynn had, was, was, using a lighter to heat up her hands because she knew that uh, that the boyfriend was not 
he didn't like it being cold, so she would warm up her hands, and that's the first thing she would do is grab his hands when, when they first encountered one another. And so later on, so they're, they're on this date, and they have, they have left wherever they're going, and they're heading out, and it's raining, and they are approached by a couple of muggers, and so now here's where Lynn has to go all badass, and she beats the hell out of the muggers, and that's where she confesses, this is what I do for a living, da-da-da-da-da, and he becomes the understanding boyfriend, and he runs into the 7-Eleven across the street. It's literally a 7-Eleven, by the way, and he buys a bottle of water, and he heats it up, and he puts it in her hands to warm them up, and I just thought it was like, it was like badass, and at the same time, just so sweet, and it, it would just, you ran such a roller coaster of emotions in this what maybe two and a half, three minute scene that it was it was just a lovely, lovely moment for me. It is a sweet moment, but again, at the same time, I didn't see much chemistry between those two. I, you know, again, it's a brother and sister vibe. That's why, you know, I think there's a lot more chemistry between Zhao Wai and Karen Mock than between Shu Ki and uh what's the actor's name? Sang Seung Hun. Yeah, I kind of get that, but but at the same time, up until that point, you know, Lynn is making a conscious choice to be a little bit more distant from him because she hasn't spilled all the beans and 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 that kind of thing. And the fact that he just he wants her anyway is is that's the big step forward in the relationship. And so we don't really see much of what comes after that, which again is kind of unfortunate, but you know, both of these films are already pretty long. So there's not I, much more you can pack into them. But that but, was the th- that was the thing I would have liked to see more of. Yeah. Also, um the guy who ends up being the real bad guy, there's a wife character there. And I th- or at least maybe the wife of a guy who is his partner. And I thought they were going to try and do a Lady Macbeth thing there, or Mm. at least someone who is fully complicit with him as a criminal. But then they really don't do anything with her. So I was a little disappointed in that. But other than that, this is, for me, a movie that really kicks butt. Yes, it does. (laughs) Now, let's talk about the three main actresses here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Shu Ki is probably best known to American audiences for being in the first Transporter movie. But and she was also in a movie from a few years ago from Hong Kong called The Assassin, which is more of an art house version of uh, this movie, though not as good, but she's very convincing in both the gun scenes and the kung fights, kung fu scenes. She's got, again, as with the killer, this is almost done like a ballet, and she's like a ballet dancer here. And Zhao Wei, who I referred to when I was talking about Red Cliff 1 and 2. She's in both of those, playing a much different role, but equally strong. She's also very good as the impulsive Sue. Yeah. And there's one element here in the movie that might seem dated, but doesn't come off as that way, simply because she handles it so well. It's the fact that she's forever photographing someone with a video camera and recording things on it. Nowadays, of course, 
they'd use the iPhone or a tablet or something like that. But again, because it's done with such playfulness and heart and also the way that she hops around like a bunny yeah. sometimes, because that refers to back what she did when she was a kid, you know, she handles that well. And as for Karen Mock, the only th- I had not seen her in anything before then. After this, I saw her in a Wong Kar Wai movie, and she gave a very different performance there, but she's very convincing as this badass cop. Yeah, she is. I mean, I, I, again, there, there are very few characters in this film that I would say, you know, this was bad casting or I didn't really buy into it. And you know, here's the other thing, and I, I realize this is going to sound a little bit on the racist side, but the fact is... I have a little bit of a form of face blindness, so it takes me a long time to tell characters apart, even if they're Caucasian. So, but but this was a, a film where I was pretty much able to pick up pretty quickly who was who, and I was I was actually happy to see that. So I, I think that is actually a um, a little bit of a of a positive nod to the casting is that everybody kind of fit into the slots that they were supposed to fit into. That a guy like me didn't really have any real issues with it the way the way I did with frankly with with in the mood for love and and even the departed okay well that's good to know now one last thing I want to bring up before we wrap this up um, as with infernal affairs you know once again you have actors in this movie uh, Zhao Wei and Karen Mock who are as known for their singing careers as much as their acting careers. And I mentioned as well uh, in The Killer, Sally Yeh is also as much known for her singing career as her acting career. So again, that's something Hong Kong does or did a lot better than America has ever done, allowing actresses to have singing careers and vice versa. Yeah, I think in the United States, it tends to go the other way f- the, where, where, the, where the, perf- the singers, be- they, get, they get acting parts and they kind of have to prove their chops that way. It doesn't seem to go much the other way. And, and you know, we learned that, you know, several episodes with uh, George Clooney where he worked like hell to do his part for uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And then he just wound up getting dubbed anyway. Right. Okay, so anything else you want to mention about this movie before we wrap it up? I have kind of one more thing that's a little bit interesting about this film is, is you, know, you know what else it reminds me of in a way? Is Psycho. And that's because the person you think is the protagonist is dead halfway through the film. And you have to like kind of shift the, the focus of the film, uh, your own focus on the film as a result. Now, that is a good point, although... While Psycho was certainly the first movie to do that, there were quite a few other movies in between then and So Close that uh, did that as well. So uh, here's where we mention that, we already mentioned, of course, that the killer can unfortunately only be found on YouTube, but So Close is available 
uh, only for rental or purchase. Oh, oh I'm sorry. It is no, available no. to stream through Tubi. Yes, you if do. If you're get- willing to sit through the ads, but it's available to rent or purchase through Amazon, Vudu, Google Play, and other streaming services. Right, and Tubi is actually pretty good because, again, it picks up exactly where it left off. You don't lose anything. And Tubi also, for the most part, it doesn't every time, but it'll actually give you like a like a 10-second warning when an ad is about to come up. So you can kind of like get yourself ready for it. Okay, I'm going to make the break for the bathroom or whatever you're going to do. And, and you get a little timer up in the corner of the screen. So you know about how long you've got before that break is over. It does not add a ton of time to the film. Sure enough. And what's happening next time around? Well, next time we're going to go back to Akira Kurosawa, who we've talked about with Seven Samurai and Yojimbo. Yeah. But this time we're going to talk about two of his contemporary set movies, meaning movies that were set during the time that they were made. From 1949, Stray Dog, though it wasn't released in the U.S. until 1963, and from 1963, High and Low. Both of these movies are available on physical DVD through Criterion, and they're also both available to stream through the Criterion channel. In addition, Stray Dog is available to watch for free on this network called Plex, which I'm not familiar with, while High and Low is available to rent or buy through Amazon and Apple TV. So in the meantime, Uh, where can we find Yi on the uh, social media? Well, I'm uh, there on Facebook as Sean Gallagher, and I'm a presence on Instagram, though I'm still not posting yet. But if you let me know, I am willing to follow you anywhere on Instagram. That's nice. And how about you, Claude? <laughs> uh, I am on the Twitter machine at Claude Call, or you can check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com. Okay. And if you have a question or a comment, then you can email us. Our email address is wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And before we forget for the millionth time, we do have a Twitter presence. It is words underscore movies pod. Okay. So thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Have a good one. See you soon. Take us away, Rebecca. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare, and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. 